a space-time box. But the average person is influenced by popular science, which is a generation behind the times and is prejudiced against the non-material world. It is hard to overstate how saturated we are with the mentality of popular science. Meditation, for example, if allowed at all, is not thought of as an encounter between a person and God, but as psychological manipulation. Usually people will tolerate a brief dabbling in the inward journey, but then it is time to get on with the real business of the real world. We need the courage to move beyond the prejudice of our age and affirm with our best scientists that more than the material world exists. In intellectual honesty, we should be willing to study and explore the spiritual life with all the rigor and determination we would give to any field of research. The second difficulty is a practical one. We simply do not know how to go about exploring the inward life. This has not always been true. In the first century and earlier, it was not necessary to give instruction on how to do the disciplines of the spiritual life. The Bible called people to such disciplines as fasting, prayer, worship, and celebration, but gave almost no instruction about how to do them. The reason for this is easy to see. Those disciplines were so frequently practiced and such a part of the general culture that the how-to was common knowledge. Fasting, for example, was so common that no one had to ask what to eat before a fast or how to break a fast or how to avoid dizziness while fasting. Everybody already knew. This is not true of our generation. Today, there is an abysmal ignorance of the most simple and practical aspects of nearly all the classic spiritual disciplines. Hence, anything written on the subject must provide practical instruction on precisely how we do the disciplines. One word of caution, however, must be given at the outset. To know the mechanics does not mean that we are practicing the disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are an inward and spiritual reality, and the inner attitude of the heart is far more crucial than the mechanics for coming into the reality of the spiritual life. In our enthusiasm to practice the disciplines, we may fail to practice discipline. The life that is pleasing to God is not a series of religious duties. We have only one thing to do, namely, to experience a life of relationship and intimacy with God, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We are accustomed to thinking of sin as individual acts of disobedience to God. This is true enough as far as it goes, but Scripture goes much further. In Romans, the Apostle Paul frequently refers to sin as a condition that plagues the human race. Sin as a condition works its way out through the bodily members, that is, the ingrained habits of the body. And there is no slavery that can compare to the slavery of ingrained habits of sin. Isaiah 57.20 says, the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot rest, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. 
The sea does not need to do anything special to produce mire and dirt. That is the result of its natural motions. This is also true of us when we are under the condition of sin. The natural motions of our lives produce mire and dirt. Sin is part of the internal structure of our lives. No special effort is needed to produce it. No wonder we feel trapped. Our ordinary method of dealing with ingrained sin is to launch a frontal attack. We rely on our willpower and determination. Whatever may be the issue for us, anger, fear, bitterness, gluttony, pride, lust, substance abuse, we determine never to do it again. We pray against it, fight against it, set our will against it. But the struggle is all in vain, and we find ourselves once again morally bankrupt, or, worse yet, so proud of our external righteousness that whitened sepulchers is a mild description of our condition. In his excellent little book entitled Freedom from Sinful Thoughts, Heine Arnold writes, we want to make it quite clear that we cannot free and purify our own heart by exerting our own will. In Colossians, Paul lists some of the outward forms that people use to control sin, touch not, taste not, handle not. He then adds that these things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. Will worship. What a telling phrase, and how descriptive of so much of our lives. The moment we feel we can succeed and attain victory over sin by the strength of our will alone is the moment we are worshiping the will. Isn't it ironic that Paul looks at our most strenuous efforts in the spiritual walk and calls them idolatry, will worship? Willpower will never succeed in dealing with the deeply ingrained habits of sin. Emmett Fox writes, As soon as you resist mentally any undesirable or unwanted circumstance, you thereby endow it with more power, power which it will use against you, and you will have depleted your own resources to that exact extent. Heine Arnold concludes, as long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will only make the evil in us stronger than ever. This same truth has been experienced by all the great writers of the devotional life, from St. Augustine to St. Francis, from John Calvin to John Wesley, from Teresa of Avila to Juliana of Norwich. Will worship may produce an outward show of success for a time, but in the cracks and crevices of our lives, our deep inner condition will eventually be revealed. Jesus describes this condition when he speaks of the external righteousness of the Pharisees. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. You see, by dint of will, people can make a good showing for a time. But sooner or later, there will come that unguarded moment when the careless word will slip out to reveal the true condition of the heart. 
If we are full of compassion, it will be revealed. If we are full of bitterness, that also will be revealed. It is not that we plan to be this way. We have no intention of exploding with anger or parading a sticky arrogance. But when we are with people, what we are comes out. Though we may try with all of our might to hide these things, we are betrayed by our eyes, our tongue, our chin, our hands, our whole body language. Willpower has no defense against the careless word, the unguarded moment. The will has the same deficiency as the law. It can deal only with externals. It is incapable of bringing about the necessary transformation of the inner spirit. When we despair of gaining inner transformation through human powers of will and determination, we are open to a wonderful new realization. Inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received. The needed change within us is God's work, not ours. The demand is for an inside job, and only God can work from the inside. We cannot attain or earn this righteousness of the kingdom of God. It is a grace that is given. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to show that righteousness is a gift of God. He uses the term 35 times in this epistle, and each time insists that righteousness is unattained and unattainable through human effort. One of the clearest statements is Romans 5.17. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness shall reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This teaching, of course, is found not only in Romans, but throughout Scripture and stands as one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith. The moment we grasp this breathtaking insight, we are in danger of an error in the opposite direction. We are tempted to believe that there is nothing we can do. If all human strivings end in moral bankruptcy, and if righteousness is a gracious gift from God, then is it not logical to conclude that we must wait for God to come and transform us? Strangely enough, the answer is no. The analysis is correct. Human striving is insufficient, and righteousness is a gift from God. But the conclusion is faulty. Happily, there is something we can do. We do not need to be hung on the horns of the dilemma of either human works or idleness. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving His grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. The Apostle Paul says, He who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul's analogy is instructive. A farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants, and then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. 
This is the way it is with the spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the Spirit. The disciplines are God's way of getting us into the ground. They put us where He can work within us and transform us. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. They are God's means of grace. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that is poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where he can bless us. In this regard, it would be proper to speak of the path of disciplined grace. It is grace because it is free. It is disciplined because there is something for us to do. In The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes it clear that grace is free, but it is not cheap. The grace of God is unearned and unearnable. But if we ever expect to grow in grace, we must pay the price of a consciously chosen course of action which involves both individual and group life. Spiritual growth is the purpose of the disciplines. There is a saying in moral theology that virtue is easy. But the maxim is true only to the extent that God's gracious work has taken over our inner spirit and transformed the ingrained habit patterns of our lives. Until that is accomplished, virtue is hard, very hard indeed. We struggle to exhibit a loving and compassionate spirit Yet it is as if we are bringing something in from the outside. Then bubbling up from the inner depths is the one thing we did not want, a biting and bitter spirit. However, once we live and walk on the path of disciplined grace for a season, we will discover internal changes. We do no more than receive a gift, yet we know that the changes are real. We know they are real because we discover that the spirit of compassion we once found so hard to exhibit is now easy. In fact, to be full of bitterness would be the hard thing. Divine love has slipped into our inner spheres and taken over our habit patterns. In the unguarded moments, there is a spontaneous flow from the inner sanctuary of our lives of love, joy, Peace, patience,